1: Hello! On this episode of Film Chat, an armed gunman causes a hostage situation at a Los Angeles grocery store. When negotiations between him and the law fail, Sam Foster, codename Foster, a member of an elite division of the Los Angeles Police Department known as the Zombie Squad, is summoned to the scene. Foster infiltrates the store, locates the gunman and negotiates with him. During the negotiation, the criminal speaks of the unknown New Order, a group of social dynamist radicals that despise modern society and believe in killing the weak, leaving only the strongest and smartest to rule the world. Foster then kills the gunman by throwing a knife at his abdomen and firing shots at him with his gun. As the bodies are removed from the supermarket, Foster is admonished by his superior, Detective Monty, for his seeming disregard for police procedures and protocols. Little does everyone realise but the supermarket Hossig's crisis is only one of a string of recent and seemingly unconnected acts of violence and murder that have broken loose in Los Angeles, perpetuated by the same supremacist group the supermarket gunman mentioned. After witnessing several individuals going on a spree killing, including the New Order leader, only identified as the Night Slasher, and businessman Danny Moran becomes the group's main target, due to him being the only living witness to their crimes. After a failed attempt on his life by the group, he is placed under the protective custody of Foster and his partner Sergeant Tony Gonzalez. Several more attempts are made on their lives by various people connected to the Order, Foster theorizes that there is an entire army of killers operating with the same modus operandi rather than a lone serial killer with some associates, but his suggestion is rebuffed by his superiors is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 1986 Sylvester Stallone film, Cobra. This is, in fact, just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and if crime is a disease, it's time to meet the cure. His name,
2: Sam Foster. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Good long intro there.
1: (laughs) How long was that? About four minutes?
2: Yeah. No, that was good. I like the idea that that's the setup for what our podcast is going to be about. It's just a long synopsis of about half an entire story. Great movie. He's called Cobra, but the tagline is kind of medical. What's that about? Shouldn't it be animal related? I don't know. Anyway, so this is going to be a episode of big emotions, bold colors and intimate voiceover as we review the Spanish drama Julieta the latest film de Pedro Almodovar I'll be offering my thoughts on the film in the form of a long lilting passionate letter to my estranged cousin Julio Dear Julio I hope this letter finds you well whatever you are there are many things I have not told you even now my pen trembles to set them down I have much to tell you of your mother of the little church where you were baptized, of the red jacket your father was buried in. But first, I saw this great film recently, and I think you'd really like it. That's how the letter starts, and I, after that, I go on about the film. Plus, we express our outrage that the BBC consulted film critics to compile a list of the top 100 films of the century so far, and overlooked us. Bullshit. What? And we reveal the film making Chinese audiences nauseous, either because of a ropey 3D transfer or because it's so mindlessly derivative of the previous Bourne films. All that should leave just enough time for me to combine two of my favourite films, Cool Hand Luke and Despicable Me, as I, live on the podcast, eat 50 hard-boiled Minions squeaky toys. (laughs) Just gonna start with one of them now. Don't do it You'll die (laughs) Mm. Surprisingly delicious
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was amazing I can't believe you got for that Julio letter in one go
2: films 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 lots of films 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 movies good films bad films fun films sad films films we love weird films last long trip films old films new films Some john who films films that star peter fitch films by david lynch films short films six hours long we've got films up to your gills with films, films 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 movies are you feeling
0: comfortable film chat has begun
1: we got a message from joe Borges because you're Borges. i'd do anything for you That's how he likes to be referred to. Um, He says, Hello, film chat. I think the Herzog on Drake is one of your more inspired ideas, both hilarious and deeply profound. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks a lot. Speaking of foreign directors, have you seen the trailer for Guardians, what's being called the Russian Avengers movie? Do you think there is something intrinsically American about big budget superhero films? The only other foreign superhero film I can think of is the Indian movie Kick, which I saw on a plane and which was amazing. What non-US superhero movies would you like to see made? What would your Banana Man screenplay look like?
2: Oof. Whoa, a lot of questions, Joe. Um, have you seen this trailer, Danny? I have. Have you seen this trailer, Sam? It's funny that you should ask me because I have seen it. What did you make of it? it just
1: looked like it just
2: it looked brilliant, didn't it? it? Brilliant, yeah, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> it looked same, brilliant. Looked like usual disaster porn guys with yeah. guns, knives. I like the uh, the uh, odd uh, pacing and the weird dubbing lines. Like the sort of mystery. Looks a bit like they used Google Translate to produce the dubbing actors' scripts and stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. To answer your first question, Joe, we have seen it. Second question, <laughs> do you think there's something intrinsically American about big-budget superhero films? Yes. <laughs> I do. Well, the comic book is the indigenous American art form.
2: That's true, yeah. They didn't that... invent sculpting or plays. I don't know. The, the ideas are like movies that are centered around people who have super, superhuman abilities and that are kind of aspirational. Is that a sort of uniquely comic booky thing? Surely its roots are in Greek myths, right? yeah but you don't really aspire to be those guys necessarily you know because they're they're not all people of great character we so, don't know enough about the world of comic books joe to answer these questions fully yeah i mean maybe in well, Russia part of it like, is that just like um hollywood has got the biggest budgets right and they they're usually staging these um sizable things yeah and the history of the big budget superhero movie is not kind of that long right because um before the latest explosion in the last 15, 20 years or so, it was only a handful of them. Yeah, true. So, um, so I guess it is so far, but maybe Guardians is going to be the thing that breaks the mould, you know? It looked like it had a lot of crossover appeal. There's a guy who turns into a bear in it. There's a guy who teleports in it. <laughs> guy who, like, throws rocks at people in it. Looks pretty exciting. So, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think audiences will sort of go mad for it. It's even got a um, giant mechanical spider, like, from Wild Wild West. And I don't know why it's taken such a long time for the giant mechanical spider to return to cinemas. So it's obviously a brilliant idea. You're right. Anyway, what was the question? <laughs> oh, my question was, what non-US superhero movie we'd like to see made? So, like, non-US superheroes. Because he mentions Banana Man, right? Who is yeah. A, probably the quintessential um, English superhero. Our equivalent of Batman. Is he? You're looking at me like <laughs> I've just gone mad. He's more, no.
1: like, he's more like the Hulk, isn't he, or something? Or... Popeye.
2: He you like, think he's more like he, Popeye, yeah. He eats the bananas and he becomes a banana man. Is he a kid when he's not eating the bananas? Yeah. He is, he's right? He's a child and he becomes a man. He's actually quite like the DC superhero Shazam, who is a child. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, I just made that up, but I okay. know, but I didn't. He's a kid. He, when he says Shazam, he becomes a uh, adult with Superman-esque powers. And then eventually returns to being about a 10-year-old boy. Wow. Um so so I guess that he's the equivalent to that thank you for directing us towards that trailer Joe it was very entertaining okay Danny set the film chat Facebook page on fire today with a killer post that got it was everyone's insane. chins wagging so the BBC recently published this list of the hundred best films of the century so far they got in touch with a bunch of film critics and asked them to supply their top tens I believe yep and they just put all these together um, into one big old list and published it. And I think there's actually like 103 movies on there or something, because it seems to be a tie for bottom, you know, right at the bottom of 100. But uh, but it's an interesting list. And one of the, the, the main point of such lists really is to spark discussion. And um, that is exactly what Danny did by asking um, our listeners and Film Chat Facebook fans what they made of it and how they would add to it.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting list because these lists are usually... If it's like 100 movies ever, there's always emissions somehow. They miss this because it's too big a data source to refine. Yeah. But what's interesting about this is that... Because it's only 15 years. uh, Only 15 years. Yeah, it's true. So it's like recent memory. And also, I think the actual list generated is really good. I was looking through it. I was thinking what would be in my top 10. And there's certainly ones that aren't on the list, but... I was going through highlighting films. I think, oh, that could be a strong contender. And I went over 10 just from this 100. I think it's a strong crop of films. And also very diverse. A lot of foreign language films, a lot of animation, which usually gets overlooked in these lists. Not that many documentaries, but it's got a couple in there.
2: Yeah, I think that it reads a little bit like the... um Sort of combination of basically the things that were highest reviewed on Rotten Tomatoes, you know, um, over the last 15 years, which I guess is what you expect since that's also drawn from a pool of critics reviews. Um, and also just things that were really big on the festival circuit. Thing like um, Uncle, Boon, Uncle Boon Me Remembers His Past Lives, what that film is called? That, um, yeah. Happy Chat Pong film that won the Palm d'Or. Yeah, probably about the only people who've seen it are the critics who love it, probably. But yeah, and then a few uh, maybe slightly more uh, surprising like left field choices, like um, Spring Breakers, which I didn't think had made that massive of a hit, that Harmony Kareem film with um, James Franco in it. Well, and, I uh, think that's the sort of... Um, maybe um, the the ultimate test of these movies is
1: time. So that might not have been a huge breakout hit that year, but it's obviously stuck with people. Yeah, As absolutely. much as like, it's all, you know, opinion, but if there's one thing that... Kanjuja film is whether it's got legs, I guess. And that's why the number one film, wall and Drive, which was released in two thousand and one, feels quite earned because it's been around for fifteen years and people still remember it. Yeah.
2: And three of the top four are from two thousand and one or from two thousand. is Spirited Away is number four and In the Move for Love is number two. Those are from two thousand one, two thousand respectively. It's a very interesting list. Is there anything on there that you saw and you're like, This is an outrage, it doesn't belong on this list, it's total bullshit. Um, just things that kinda of perplex me, like history of violence. On yeah, there. I didn't think that's that a, was, like an odd. That seemed like an odd choice to me as
1: well. I think what's happened, this is a bit of amateur theory psychology here, because it's what I would do is like people think of the filmmakers they like and just look at the films they made in the last 15 years and then select their favourite of yeah. that. And so maybe people think that Cronenberg should be on the list somewhere, but 21st Century hasn't really produced an amazing Cronenberg movie, and that's deemed to be the best one. Maybe, yeah. And I think it, with that... A similar thing is films by filmmakers which aren't particularly prolific get missed out. So um, I think Olivia pointed out Four Lines was missing, which is I think is like a lot of people would consider that one of the best movies of this century. But it's Christopher Christmas early film. So when yeah. people think of a list, they think of filmmakers in their consciousness. Similarly, like Downfall, I thought would be on there. Uh, You're but, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Oliver, uh, what's his name? Forget the um, director. He
2: is called...
1: Hirsch... Hirsch...
2: Hirschbegel Hirschbegel. Like yeah, and... Um, um, but because he's made Diana since and some other films are on that well-reviewed, yeah, he invasion. sort of dropped
1: out of the critical consciousness.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a very... That's a very reasonable theory. Um, so we got, like, a whole bevy of um, comments about this from our listeners where they were suggesting a bunch of things. So uh, Dougal McQueen wrote in. He had a bunch of different ideas, including, we need to talk about Kevin, Wendy and Lucy... Um, we are the best. It's that like Swedish movie about the girl starting a punk band. Archipelago, The Arbor, Grizzly Man, Princess Mononoke, a film called The Last Mistress. I don't even know what that is. He knows more about movies than me, obviously. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I think that's his um, grad film, actually. <laughs> <laughs> a bit arrogant. And uh, he complains that shame is on the list. I think we probably. Agree oh yeah, with that. shame is bad. Shame is quite bad. Yeah. I also don't know. I didn't really agree with the New World being on there. But I think masterpiece, <laughs> Terrence Malick has got more like he's on those directors that the critics at like I mean I think he's kind of divisive but I think that maybe there's enough critics who absolutely love him that he ends up on these lists you know because like there's going to be these guys who put uh, yeah always put a couple of his movies in their top tens
1: yeah I think that's true but I think people would definitely say that the first of his career is much stronger than this second half yeah I mean maybe it's a similar movies. thing
2: like um the David your David Cronenberg suggestion where it's like he's in people's minds and they want to include him somewhere because Tree of Life is really really high up there that's a very strange film. Yeah, I was maybe surprised it's worth, to see that. Me too, yeah. Maybe it's worth revisiting. I love that movie. Do you? Yeah, Katie loves that film. I really love it. What's, what's your view of you like the bit it? where the dinosaurs discover morality or something? It's like, fuck it, why not? <laughs> 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 I have the Big Bang for 14 minutes in the middle. Yeah. Uh, Dougal also suggests the first Lord of the Rings, which I think is a good suggestion. It feels like a bit of an omission.
1: Yeah, I agree. It was a bit of a strange list in that some blockbusters, like The Dark Knight and Mamax Max Free Road, yeah, um, made the list but Lord of the Rings which and uh, the Bourne films which That's you might true, not yeah. say but like the most probably the most influential films in their respective genres
2: and also very I think something like the Bourne Ultimatum it's is very, very critically acclaimed and it's very, very and it's yeah. very
1: 21st century and you know, it's yeah. very
2: relevant to the time it's made Olivia Waring has a bunch of suggestions she mentioned four lines as you said earlier she was also suggesting Sexy Beast the Jonathan Glazer movie well, Under the, the Skin was on the list under so, the skin, yeah. So that I, was their glazer slot. Exactly. I feel yeah. like if you think of it that way. And uh, she's also noting that there wasn't a single Darden brothers movie. The Darden brothers? I got no Darden brothers. Darden brothers on the list. Um, I've never seen a Darden brothers film. What? You've seen
1: the Darden brothers? No. I, I'm
2: aware that they're like, um, are they? They're definitely festival darlings, aren't they? Like they they're love them. Totally. The love them. Don't they, they love them. They love them. The Darden. They love them. Almost as much as Javier Dolan. <laughs> um. But, uh, yeah, Dougal agrees that Two Days, One Night belongs on there. Mate. Mate. Two Days, One Night. Got to see some Darden Brothers movies, obviously. Olivia's also suggesting that Belleville Rendezvous and The Illusionists are better than Finding Nemo. I don't have a strong view on that, but Belleville Rendezvous is good. I guess it's not, not horrifying. Well, omission. a bunch
1: of Pixar movies made the list. Yeah. But they weren't the ones I would pick, which no.
2: means they're the wrong
1: ones. Well, they, um... well they've got Wally is really high up there, isn't it? Wally is Wall-E. like... They put all Andrew Stanton's ones on it, like Finding Nemo, and I think he's the worst one of the Pixar... I mean, I know that's being like, you know, they're all great, but where was Monsters, Inc., the best Mm. Pixar film? Or Up? Inside Out was on there, but I would take...
2: Yeah, Inside Out is on there. I
1: would take Up and Monsters, Inc. over Finding Nemo and Wall-E.
2: Yeah. Any day. Any day, mate. Dan Knowles suggests Looney Tunes back in action. Well, obviously, obviously, don't no no further comment necessary in that. Quite clear, uh, deserved top ten pick. Georgia Mills, she says Moulin Rouge. Yeah, that was weird. I think she's questioning its inclusion on the list. It's somewhere like around fifty three. Well, I don't like it, but isn't it super popular? I thought it would. Do you think it's weird to be in there? I thought a lot of people loved that movie. Well, it's definitely a movie that has some staying power. Like people still talk about it a lot. And stuff. Yeah, but it means that you know enough people been in their top 10
1: films of the last 16 <laughs> years you know yeah like what was in the, in their top 10 films
2: yeah i guess how many I didn't films
1: know. these critics right they watch all the movies every year like out of how many films and that was in the top 10 that's like thousands right
2: well yeah i'm kind of yeah i'm kind of with you because you do I the maths on it, it i don't no i don't sense. i don't really like it you may sort of i find it a bit dizzying and exhausting tom andrews um, has some suggestions. He says, uh, lots of my favorite movies were here, which made me feel pretty predictable. I guess you and him are on the same page, Danny. Yeah. It is a pretty John. good list. He also uh, wants to mention Weekend from 2011. Don't know that film. What you is that? know Weekend? I, is I that not That's it. not The Weekend with um, Jim, Jim Broadbent. Uh, Lindsay Duncan. No. No, I'm Weekend was
1: um, a film about um, these, a gay film about these two guys who hook up on a Friday and then spend the weekend together. I never saw it. I know it was shot on a 5D camera. That was like a big talking point around the film.
2: Tom also highlights Bad Education as Better Than Talk to Her. Talk to Her was actually a slightly surprising choice of Almodovar film. More on Almodovar later. Um, he also mentioned some Lars von Trier movies, Dancer in the Dark from 2000 and Antichrist and Nymphomaniac. Um, and the, the von Trier they went for is... They went for Dogville and Melancholia. Dogville and Melancholia. Both strong picks. Yeah, Melancholia, again, it seems like slightly surprising in that it felt like a sort of minor one when it came out, but maybe that's just one that's really stuck with people.
1: It is awesome. I love yeah.
2: it. I think it's great. Would you put Dogville and uh, Melancholia above Dance in the Dark, Antichrist, and Nymphomaniac? I would put it over
1: Nymphomaniac and Dance in the Dark. I don't hmm. Antichrist. Antichrist is sort of... Uh, it's
2: hard maybe to categorise, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think it's like worth inclusion just because it's so sort of like... What yeah. the
2: fuck? Tom also mentions that um it's a very male says he describes it as all a bit earnest and male the list. Um he says ridiculous that there's so much Wes Anderson and no mean girls or bridesmaids. Also Tree of Life, what the fuck? You. Also, maybe Enter the Void, the Dreamers, maybe even Short Bus. Enter films that are so
1: boring. <laughs> Good God, man. Good Lord,
2: Tom. Enter the void. Anyway, I think it's probably like film critics are very very largely male so it probably is true that it's got a bit of a um like male critics tilt to the list and i wouldn't have objected to bridesmaids being on there i think it's a great movie if you put bridesmaids on that list you could lose the white ribbon yeah some of the great michael haneke movies God, a lot of he's high. a super earnest male director Whoa, haneke
1: coming out of the wazoo on this list yeah the only michael haneke, haneke
2: movie i've seen is hidden and i wasn't crazy about it
1: I was gonna say the one thing that sprung up from this list is that, with the exception of a few names, it doesn't have many films by what you deem like noughties directors, like directors who really came to prominence in this century. Mm. With the exception of maybe like Christopher Nolan, even though he started with like Memento, which is was 90s. Anderson, you could probably. Say oh that. no, it's two thousand, isn't it? Sorry, but it's like directors who you maybe consider more '90s directors who kind of hit their stride in this decade. Yeah, you know, like their two films in, and so I don't know. Like, there's no Edgar Wright or. Ben Wheatley or Ryan Johnson or uh, Bong Joon-ho who I would consider like the directors I'm most excited for their work in the next 10 years
2: whereas like I'm
1: not sure if some of these directors like maybe their best works behind them and if
2: that's a cynical world view. No I think that's probably true because like the guys who appear loads like the Coen brothers and um, you know Paul Thomas Anderson and guys like that that's true they're all um, all became known as like great auteurs before the list you know started. Um, I think probably Wes Anderson is the most naughty director who appears a lot on the list.
1: He started in the 90s.
2: Yeah, but hes I feel like he's sort of come into bloom more in the naughties. That's my point, man. That's my point. And he, all right, fine. <laughs> Fair enough. Just agreeing
1: with me. Okay. Just agreeing with yeah, me. Okay. All right. And that-
2: hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite
0: of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
2: Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Not Shamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bates made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print.
1: So a few weeks ago we reviewed um the latest Born film. We did. And it's come out in China and it's doing pretty good business. But in the Asian markets, uh, 3D is a much bigger thing and much more ubiquitous. So uh, Universal Pictures create an exclusive 3D version of the film for Asian audiences. And that's the screening you're most likely to see in Asia. So that's the film type. You know, it's harder to see a 2D screening than a 3D version. sort of opposite of here. But it's causing a lot of problems because the Paul Greengrass style of camera work and editing yeah. Is making everyone nauseous. Doesn't doesn't lend itself to 3D treatment. And Chinese moviegoers are saying they're leaving the cinema, first of all disappointed by the lacklustre return of the franchise. Yeah. And also, they're dizzy and nauseous. <laughs> so if the, you know, the paucity of the film wasn't bad enough to add insult to injury, they'll also feel a bit sick.
2: Yeah. I'm really glad that we don't have this culture over here of like every movie is automatically in 3D and you have to go out of your way to avoid it. Because... Um, choosing to do it for this particular film makes absolutely no sense whatsoever the it's... camera is like constantly juddering up and down so i was what... trying to
1: think is there a bit where something flies at the screen
2: probably not Bourne's motorbike i don't know <laughs> but it, the whole greengrass style is filled with such like constant editing that if something's flying at the screen at you you know it's going to be somewhere else in a second second later well it's already immersive and now it's like too immersive right it's trying to put
1: you in the center of the action but you had that with the... Well,
2: that, that sort of technique wants to make you feel a bit frantic like you would if you were in the fight itself, yeah. you know? Um, so I guess it's immersive in that sense. But it's not in the sense that it's definitely not trying to create the feeling that you are physically in the space with them, which is what you get from 3D. I saw the BFG in 3D, which I didn't mention in my review of it, but I did. And, uh, and that's much more a sort of wondrous film with floaty things that bob towards you and away from you, And it seemed like a very suitable film to receive that treatment, whereas if the BFG had like been fighting a bunch of like Russian agents in like, you know, quick cutting and then like having to jump off a bridge and you know swim to safety or whatever, whatever it is that Bourne does, (laughs) uh, I probably would have uh, yeah. So what are you saying? Vomited into my lap.
1: Is they even need to make more two D screens available or just add more floating things into the film?
2: Yeah, I think they should have re-edited the entire movie. He has like a, Much a fight in like a sort of bubble factory or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's all sort of... Or a ball pit. Yeah, just one like distant shot. The camera doesn't move. Yeah, Bourne's in this ball pit. He's fighting... uh He's throwing the balls. Mansoe Cassell. <laughs> They're throwing the balls at each other, They're throwing them directly at the camera. Yeah, it would have been great. Yeah, they're not actually... It'd be best if they were on opposite ends of the pit. Yeah. And Vincent Cassell's near you, Bourne's in the distance, and it's they're just, just throwing, throwing the balls yeah. at each other. Camera doesn't move. <laughs> in more exciting news, Forbes, the chroniclers of the wealthy, they have produced... They like lists of rich people. Mm. And not just one list, but many, categorized into different areas. They've produced the their list of the world's highest paid actors of 2016 and the top actor is The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He had a great year. He made 64.5 million dollars. Good god. Um and he elbowed out Robert Downey Jr, which means that the Fast and Furious franchise is paying better than all these Marvel movies, I guess, at the moment.
1: Well, he also makes like a film a month it seems, right? Dwayne, he makes more movies. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr only plays Iron Man these days.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, whereas Dwayne has been all over the shop Absolutely. recently, been a very busy man. Um, and uh, the list highlights the gender pay gap in Hollywood quite substantially. Yep. So in the top 10, there are only two ladies. They are Jennifer Lawrence at number six and Melissa McCarthy at number nine. The other guys, I might as well mention them. Yeah, run them him, run down. Run them down. So a number 10, a guy called Shah Rukh Khan. Don't even... Oh yeah, I know, know this guy. I know him
1: because he's, just a, he's the biggest
2: Bollywood star. I thought it was Amitabh Bachchan. Well, obviously Khan's overtaken him. I must have overtaken him. Because it was that... Wait, is this the guy who was in Jurassic World? No. Or that's Amitabh Bachchan, is it? Yeah, the guy yeah. who
1: was in Life of Pi. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, so I don't know who this character is. Uh, number nine is Ms. McCarthy. Number eight is Vin Diesel. Um, that's Sweet Fast and Furious money. But it's Dwayne works outside that franchise. That's why he's earning more money. I thinking that's what their beef is about recently. Is that why uh, Vin Diesel is a candy ass? Maybe. Um, we can only speculate. Number seven is Ben Affleck. Number six, Jennifer Lawrence. Number five is Johnny Depp. Number four is Tom Cruise, which is kind of interesting. Well, he produces um, the Mission Impossible films. Is this producer, Dollar... I think the Pretty reason, like, no one's oh, gets getting... like, some of the cut, of the, exactly, of the no gross or something.
1: it's not the heyday where people got 20 million a film, it's, yeah. like, you get percentage points, and they're in these mega franchises that are get, you know, lining up the international box office, and as such, they see the back end of, like, all the money.
2: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, well, Matt Damon's number three, Jackie Chan is number two, and Rock's number one, but it's funny that, like, um... A lot of these guys are kind of you. You would have thought of them as maybe like kind of getting on a bit or moving out out of their prime years, and they're still getting paid more than almost anyone else in Hollywood. Yeah, I guess so. Um, Jackie Chan, he it must, it must have raked it in for Dragon Blade, that film with uh, John Cusack. Well, it. you
1: know the Chinese markets where the money's at, and that's where most of his films are I geared guess towards. No one
2: threw up in that one. That's no. why uh, it was a good film to go see
1: with Dwayne the Johnson. I think his. Um, money is deserved because he is literally the biggest of all of them right yeah so he's got to pay for specialist clothes he's got to eat so much chicken that's true he's got to pay
2: for that chicken how
1: much money of you know the 62 million of it is how much of that is just going on protein alone
2: yeah and rice like how much like i know rice is cheap but he probably eats so much of it that it would put a dent in it's cheap for most people but Uh, the
1: quantities that the rock is consuming it in yeah I mean, he probably spends about 60 million of that just
2: on maintaining his size, right? When people talk about the pay gap, what they don't take into account is the amount of extra space a lot of men take up. Exactly. <laughs> men are bigger. She? The... Katie's taller than me, so she deserves to be paid more than I <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, yeah you know, all that good. extra space in the world, it's not free, is it? You've got to maintain it by eating, and that costs money. So... You need more um, sort of square footage for yourself in your apartment.
1: Absolutely. I mean, as far as I can see it, this, this pay gap between genders is completely justified because of the <laughs> the size uh, yeah.
2: disparity. Jennifer Lawrence is paid 20 million less than Dwayne Johnson. But she's, but she's probably only 10% of his body mass. So, Benny really, she's doing. She's much. overpaid. She's overpaid. <laughs> or Dwayne is. You assume underpaid. that he is being paid the correct amount. <laughs> yeah. And if you'd said to me, like, how much is Dwayne The Rock Johnson worth in monetary terms in a single year, I probably would have said $64.5 million, even if I hadn't seen that. So I think that's reasonable. Having seen him in Fast and Furious 7. Yeah, I hope he takes up a lot of the space in the film Fast and Furious 8 <laughs> to justify a proper big paycheck. He's
1: got to have a big trader, is not he, to fit in when he's on the set? That's going to yeah. cost more money.
2: It's got to have very heavy. Because like,
1: protein weighs more than fat. So yeah. it probably needs, probably needs more oil. Cause the trailer
2: the... needs to be well built, doesn't it, to withstand just the I weight mean, of the I mean, you start body.
1: factoring in these costs.
2: Yeah. Oh.
1: Well, I it mean, is that even enough? Is he, <laughs> <laughs> he going to be okay? <laughs> He's probably only just
2: scraping by.
1: He's living between meals at the moment. Yeah. He doesn't know where his next. Uh, if you're like. Going if from. you're
2: sort of massively. Like enormous, um, because you work out so much. Uh, if <laughs> <laughs> sorry, let me rephrase that. As someone who is massively enormous because they work out so much, yes, you've got to do a lot to maintain your body. I mass, do, Chris. I do, yes. So does that mean that if you make a slight change in your exercise routine, oh. your size changes? You know, commensurately. Absolutely. So if you eat one less chicken a day, you <sighs> notice that your own, you know, you shrink and all yeah. your clothes don't fit. Yeah. So if Dwayne is on a different movie, if he's like one of his children's films, perhaps. Yeah. Where he doesn't need to be as big, and he, oh. he reduces his like you know chicken intake down by a couple of chickens. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> does he then like have to buy all new clothes because yeah. they just don't yeah. fit him anymore?
1: You think you're saving money on the chickens,
2: Yeah. But... <laughs> and then he makes Hercules. He's got to eat five more chickens a day, and then he's like, <laughs>
1: Yeah, I got to get new. new no clothes. matter how many, I can't <laughs> win. No <laughs> how many chickens, I
2: eat. <laughs> the cost that, you know, roll over. Yeah, I got my five chicken a day wardrobe. I got my seven chicken a day wardrobe. and It's all different clothes. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, it doesn't make sense for Jackie Chan in that case because he's this <laughs> sort of elderly, wrinkled, <laughs> tiny Chinese guy. So I've, that's a pretty exhaust, exhaustive discussion. Of, uh, a lot of list-based discussion this week. A lot of list-based discussion. Poor Robert Downey Jr. stuck out there at number 11 with a mere $33 million to his name. How does he manage... So let's think of him and the poor Chinese audience is vomiting during Jason Bourne. Those are the uh, f- official film chat objects of pity this week. <laughs> and now the customary 12-minute silence. <laughs>
0: Sam and Danny both watched a film And they decided
2: to record a few opinions On the things they saw You're gonna hear them in a moment or so There could be angry disagreements But their views are normally quite close A joint review shared between two podcast
0: brothers Do they let one another speak Or do they interrupt each other the on is are in So let the chat begin
1: Julieta is the latest film from, how do you pronounce it, authentic Spanish pronunciation. Yeah, with a little gulp. <laughs> <laughs> Hulieta. Julieta. <laughs> latest film from Spanish maestro Pedro Almodovar. And the film is about a lady. What's her name? Julieta. Yeah. And at the beginning of the film, she's going to move from Madrid. But then she bumps into a old friend of her daughter's. And that prompts her to stay in Madrid. And you learn that she's actually estranged from her daughter. And she starts writing a long, uh, well, starts off as a sort of diary entry come letter to her estranged daughter and explains how she met the father of her daughter and how they came to be estranged. It's like a flashback, which intercuts reality. And the film is sort of half melodrama, half meditation about mothers and daughters and how their lives sort of seem to echo each other in their events.
2: Yes, family yeah. bonds. Yeah, it's all this sort of weighty, good, dramatic stuff. Yeah, how the past affects the present. And yeah.
1: So I saw this film today.
2: I saw it yesterday. So we have totally different take. <laughs> I've got more. I've got what you might call a Tuesday take.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say that I think what's so enjoyable about Pedro Almodovar's films, and uh, this is maybe something of a cop out, is that they're so rich, both visually and thematically, that they take some digestion. Yeah, Mo- and you've had slightly more than me.
2: Yeah, that's why I'm. So saying So I expect your review to be stuff.
1: much better, but I really uh, loved it. I thought it was great. What do you think? I liked it a lot. I thought it was really good. I really liked it. I liked it in the same way I like Almodovar. It has all the things which make his films good, and yeah. all on
2: show in this film. It's very Almodovari. I almost like found it funny from the very first second of the film how Almodovari it is. <laughs> it starts with this vibrant red shimmering fabric and this lovely like spanish music starts playing and the credits start playing and the fabric is just like moving a little bit and you're immediately enveloped in this sort of rich world of melodrama it's like brilliant
1: yeah that's half the fun of his movies is how visually rich they are for example in the movie there's a bit where there's a birthday cake but it's not just some birthday cake it's a beautiful sumptuous. red Sancho's cake with a dark blue ribbon and like that color palette has a lot of thematic underpinning if you choose to look for it but even if you don't, it's like that is an awesome-looking cake, yes. and it feels like every single detail. not I mean <laughs> the first thing I want to say about this film is the cake is delicious. Okay, I just picked that sort of randomly as an example, but I just mean in the fact that every bit of the film, the production design and the color palette is—it's like really emotionally driven. Yeah, uh, and they're always telling you something about the character.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you're in danger when talking about a mode of our movies and lapsing into Spanish cliches about like you know. <laughs> Like direct, open, unbridled passion and stuff like that. But his movies do they really wear their hearts on their sleeves. Um, well,
1: I feel like melodrama is a slightly loaded term perhaps um, less loaded, be just like a very emotionally sensitive director. Yeah. Very who sort of tells you what the characters are feeling all the time and sort of modulates that through the film and uses visuals to communicate that, which I might be describing all films there. But art is like it's so vibrant.
2: Yeah. I yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a little more um restrained actually than some of his other movies. There's a lot of Almodar movies that are very striking in their weirdness and they have like quite out there elements. And thematically the film that this bears the closest resemblance to is All About My Mother, um, which is a movie from nineteen ninety nine. Just too um Pips, couldn't get in the yeah, list. Yeah, couldn't quite make the list of the top hundred um, but that's a really, really brilliant movie that's also about sort of cross-generational relationships between um, uh, mothers and daughters and, you know, uh, family uh, interpersonal relationships and stuff. Um, but that has a lot more elements that are uh, strange. Whereas pretty much everything that happens in Julieta is sort of from a, the playbook of regular family dramas. It's And, true. and I, think, I think that that might be to do with um, the source material, which is not... Come directly from Almodovar's brain, but um, it's adapted from three uh, short stories by Alice Munro. And originally, apparently, the the movie was conceived as an English language debut for Almodovar, starring Meryl Streep playing an actress in three different ages. Um, and then eventually, that was abandoned. It was turned back into a Spanish film, and there was just like two actresses um, playing at, uh, someone about two different ages. Julieta. Um, Julieta. Yeah. So I think that for if you if you've watched a lot of Almodovar, you might be Expecting something that was um, uh, more sort of in your face, uh, and because this this movie is a little more strained, I think there's some critics have seen it as like slightly more minor work. Ah, uh, yeah, I think maybe relative to his other
1: films, that might be true, but because the film is about this woman sort of drawing on her memories, I think there's a bit of creative license there where her memories are super vivid. So mm, when she's true, yeah. Uh, meets her husband on this train. It's like the snow is coming down. She's wearing this awesome, like electric blue jumper. That's the best bit. He's wearing like red. There's a stag running in the snow. It's like, this is, I was like, this is some fucking cinema here. I'm strapping in for the cinema. One of the things I,
2: one of the things I saw when I was reading the Wikipedia article about this, which is how I have all these great (laughs) research facts about the film, Um, is that he was saying that one of the things that drew him to the story in um, the Alice Monroe stories initially was this bit on the train because he thought it was very cinematic, the sort of woman on the train story. Yeah. And, um, and you can tell that he's done that scene with a lot of relish and it's got everything great about um, Amodavar's style, basically, in that sequence. And it's also part of what's a lot of fun about the movie is that it is kind of a story constructed from a bunch of quite common, um, you could say cliched in some ways, cinematic and plot devices that are sort of arranged in very careful, like, craftsman-like ways to produce certain effects and the uh, so the sort of like the fates of certain characters or like the ways in which the story moves on the ways in which it changes are all like quite familiar and it's just kind of big strokes storytelling but it's very i, I just find it very compelling you know he's someone who he just loves telling the story so much and it's yeah. hard not to get swept up on it it's very and true there's, there's a lot of scenes where someone like will just sit down and they'll be across someone and they'll be like there's something i never told you and, like, some <laughs> incredible secret will pour forth. And it's always kind of gripping, even though it's a cousin to the world of soap opera, really, that sort of stuff. But it's, yeah, it's so sort of, like, big-hearted that um, yeah, you're gripped by it.
1: and also, the movie, it feels deceptively simple, but it covers so much ground, and slips mm. between past and present and characters aging with such ease. Yeah. And, like, it pulls all these strands together. You know, it's sort of effortless. Yeah. which is but it's brilliantly done. He's such so confident he It's just, really well
2: constructed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and I really for um, the performances were awesome. I found Julieta, she was great, the older Julieta like her sort of performance of a woman grieving. and then the young Julieta was also brilliant. Distractingly attractive,
2: extremely attractive. I found uh, as was her, um, sort of boyfriend, husband. As oh well, my god! I was like, my these goodness.
1: guys better have a sexy kid. After this, this is one sexy couple on this train.
2: Yeah, they really, they really are extremely distractingly attractive. Like, good god! Good Almodovar hallmark. Hot sexy people. people in his movies. <laughs> yeah, well, it's another reason to check out his. Earth.
1: I had a thought after the film. Go ahead. And then I thought, this is like a sort of quite wankery film critic-y thing to say. Well, that's
2: why people listen. To this podcast when
1: I was, to draw a crappy analogy like if the scripts was like a coloring book a might have always like goes around the lines a little bit <laughs> and what I like about his films is that every character feels like the protagonist in their own film and because it jumps through um time a lot um I think the film's quite affecting is that you just have to fill in the gaps of what's happened in the years and so you see a character and you see him 10 years on mm. and then there's so much detail given about their life in, like, a two-minute scene that it's, like, this whole of a world unto themselves. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that really zeroes
2: in. I think that's a really um, excellent point. And uh, it's very appropriate to the plot of this film as well because it's all about the secrets that people keep from each other and how, when they learn something about someone else, then it completely changes what they knew about that person. And all the characters are learning things about each other throughout the movie that... Change things despite their long histories. There's a really good evocation of like the weight of the past in the yeah. movie, and which it's... I think is really effectively done. Because you, that's a good example of effective cinematic craft. Because like the movie has to convince you that years have passed, even though you know the actors don't look any older, or well, Julieta does, but a lot of them, a lot of the others don't. Um and uh you have to employ a bunch of tricks to do that if you're not boyhood. Um and, boyhood. Uh, not a hack like Later. Doing Just it twelve bloody years. Yeah. Like a cheat. <laughs> um and yeah, I think I think all that all that stuff is really, really well well evoked.
1: Yeah, I think it's excellent. It's ninety minutes, it goes down super easy, it's super entertaining, you sort of wallow in it. And, mm. and then but afterwards i mean there's a lot to chew on and it's yeah. very cleverly plotted and afterwards i kept on noticing things i say afterwards it's been two hours and i was like <laughs> oh that bit and i was like oh wait a second that bit echoes that bit and there's probably yeah a video essay in the brewing on youtube as we speak
2: yeah analyzing the this only film. Like, the only thing that i would say about it if i was going to venture a criticism of the movie is that the it's got such a ravishing and luscious style. That there isn't a great deal of emotional pain to be for the viewer, I think. In what when you're watching a story which is about people in great emotional torment, and maybe this is a feature of Almodovar generally, Mm. but I think that it's just a comforting experience for the viewer. I don't know if you, you know, we consider that a criticism or not. Yeah. But like, it's a movie in which a lot of people are extremely miserable, but um even though you you were kind of it's a movie that is trying to get you to well up but not really feel that bad you can't possibly leave the cinema and be like upset it's like so beautiful to look at they're all live, living in these incredible apartments <laughs> and everything like that uh, money never seems to come into it like they just live in these like outstanding places and everything is um, really really lovely all the time mm. um even in like depictions of like extreme uh, human misery um so i don't know it's like it's a very comfortable film I
1: yeah. I think it's partly in just the structure in that it's like you're watching you've seen the aftermath before the event. Yeah. And so like the actual really difficult emotional bit is like the sort of gap in the movie. Mm. And you're seeing the before and after. That's, yeah, more. that's true. That's true. Um when whether that lands or not I guess depends on just how you come at the film. Yeah. Uh but yeah, I see yeah. your point.
2: I uh, yeah, I I uh, yeah. I would hardly recommend it. It's um he's always he's just always worth seeing and uh I always like his movies and this did not. Disappoint me. It's great. When Zach Graff heard something that changed his life, what did he listen to? When John
0: Cusack made a mistake for his future wife, what did she listen to?
2: And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? And when Tim Robbins showed Shorchak that he had enough, which record did he choose?
1: Yeah, yeah 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 So another legend has left us this year. Yeah. Gene Wilder passed away at 83. 2016. 2016. That's what everyone's, that's what everyone's saying now. In the history books it'll just be a big line for and just says what the fuck. Yeah. Um, look up the word death in the dictionary. <laughs> it's just a
2: picture of the year 2016.
1: Yeah, and uh he's it's, it's very sad. I mean, he had a great run. 83 is, you know, 83 is pretty reasonable age. innings, yeah. And he was um, quite ill towards the end of his life. And there's been a big, I mean, there's always a huge outpouring of affection for these people, but I feel like Gene Wilder, it feels almost like especially so, because his sort of persona was one of somebody who's very sweet and kind-hearted, and that just seems to be, was just him. And what people were reacting on screen was just his Gene Wilderness. Which yeah. Which is just like a sort of a strong core of decency to everything he did.
2: Yeah, I have to confess that I'm not, I'm a bit of a Wilder ignoramus. It's a bit like when Bowie died. And I was like, shit, I better listen to that song, The Heroes. Um, Well, you just have talking about it. You have just a series of great films to discover. I haven't even, I don't think I've even seen Blazing Saddles. Well, he's he's, he's really good in it. Well, glad to hear it, because I'm going to be watching it. Yeah, and I think
1: um, Gene Wilder is a sort of unique comedy actor in the way Bill Murray is, or, I don't know, um, Robin Williams, in that people now do a performance and it's like Gene Wilder-esque and just like, but he was the original. And yeah. Will always always will be that. And uh, he only made 20 movies and they're not all great, but many of them are. <laughs> how many, how many was, have you seen? I've seen all Mel Brooks ones. So Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, the producers, they're all amazing. And of course, uh, Woody Wonka, which is probably what he's best known for. And yeah. I think it's probably his best performance because he, with that performance, he kind of channeled I think what made um, that book good and what makes Dahl good, which is like the sort of darkness of it. He's like a very weird mm. and the sort of obvious way to play is sort of how Johnny Depp did it, as this sort of sweet, naive, eccentric, but he's actually quite menacing and quite odd and uh, unknowable. And, yeah. And scary at times. Yeah.
2: Like he's got some kind of um, agenda that. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And that feels very different to who he was. He was just like a sort of sweet guy. So it's an actual like brilliant performance. And Since his death, all these
2: um, letters have come out about his process, right? Yeah, people have been sharing some cool stuff that Gene Wilder wrote in tribute to him. Um, He had some interesting comments on uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, He was said to his director, When I make my first entrance, I like to come out of the door carrying a cane and then walk toward the crowd with a limp. After the crowd sees Willy Wonka is a cripple, they all whisper to themselves and then become deathly quiet. As I walk toward them, my cane sinks onto one of the cobblestones I'm walking on and stands up straight by itself. But I keep on walking until I realize that I no longer have my cane. I start to fall forward, and just before I hit the ground, I do a beautiful forward somersault and bounce back up to great applause. Asked why Wilder said, "Because from that time on, no one will know if I'm lying or telling the truth." <laughs> well, it worked. Cool, clever idea. Is that what happens? I'm yeah. in the film. Too ignorant. I'm going to have to it's be great. taken into a special room and shown a bunch of Darden brothers and Gene Wilder films until I can come back and call myself a proper podcast host. It's quite sweet reading that letter because it just felt like he
1: was so effortless in his performances that yeah. it was just like he was just, you know, turned up and just did his Gene Wilder thing.
2: But a lot it's of, like,
1: oh, there's actually loads of preparation. Well, actually, also, that makes a lot of sense. That's that, why he's so good. Well that well also
2: that kind of um, captures the aspect of the character that you were talking about in that it's a both a comic moment and one that makes him slightly mysterious and like, you know, a trickster figure who you wouldn't trust. Absolutely. So yeah, it's cool. He's great. And um to play us
1: out, I wanted to play this clip of um, Gene Wilder discussing why he was cast as a psychiatrist who loves a sheep in Woody Allen's Everything You Want About Sex, uh, but we're afraid to ask because there's something brilliant about that as a topic.
2: Yeah. Well, set up the the segment in the. Unless, unless that's all you need to know about it. <laughs> What's the segment in me? Because, like, in, it's a kind of like sketch movie. Yeah, it's like various... a portmanteau film. Yeah. And
1: in it, a, a farmer comes to Gene Wilder's like, psychiatrist about who's in love with a sheep and uh, he brings a sheep with him. And Gene Wilder obviously thinks this guy's nuts. But then he falls in love with the sheep. Great setup. And there's a great scene where Gene Wilder uh, is talking to the sheep and the sheep's wearing suspenders and lingerie. I mean, if that doesn't make you laugh, are you even human?
2: Um, I didn't laugh out loud when you said that, but I was amused inwardly. Get out.
1: Anyway, here's Gene Wilder talking about it.
2: And we will see you next week. Absolutely. See you then.
1: Bye.
2: He said, I want to do a remake of the
1: film Sister Carrie. And I'm thinking of either you or Laurence Olivier, but instead of Jennifer Jones, I want to use a sheep. And I knew then why he wanted me, because he wanted someone who would fall in love with a sheep and not do it as a joke, but truly fall in love with a sheep to the extent that an actor can do that. And he chose the right actor.